Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. So today, I've been listening to the news driving around, and Broadway um, has got me thinking about uh, COVID vaccine again. And uh, you may have heard the news that several plays have uh, and shows have had issues with people uh, testing positive. And hopefully no one is very sick, but nevertheless, of course, isolation is still required under these circumstances. So maybe you too are thinking about issues around this, boosters, um, vaccines for future variant. And uh, what to do right now? Well, it's a moving target. It changes from moment to moment as we learn more and as bumps in the road appear. So I want to open the forum up for your questions. I've been getting a lot of questions about boosters, for example, and maybe you have some too. We're really at a crossroads when it comes to this issue of vaccines and future vaccine development. Do we go after a polyvalent vaccine? Do we just try to stay ahead of the latest dominant variant? Or do we go after something different? Do we go after conservation? And I don't mean uh, environmental conservation. I mean genetic conservation. The conserved regions of a virus are really what we should be looking for. Think of a screwdriver. I'll explain it this way. The handle of your screwdriver can be any color or shape. The length of the shaft also can vary from an inch to 15 or 20 inches, depending upon the intended purpose. But the business end of that Phillips head screwdriver, well, it has to keep the same shape in order to do, to turn the screw to do its job. Now imagine, uh, well, That's really what we should think about doing. We went after the spike protein with the first vaccines because we knew how and we had to move fast. But maybe we should be, and I think that we are, in parallel, looking hard for another target, a conserved target that won't be able to change its shape or uh, mutate because if it mutates, it's no longer non-viable. Candidates exist, and I'm very interested in seeing if we can find some and perhaps create a vaccine that will be pol- that will cover all of what we've currently seen plus what we might be seeing in the future. This contrasts to a polyvalent v- vaccine. So, for example, uh, we have Prevnar 13 and we have Prevnar 20, and these are vaccines against pneumococcus and different surface uh, markers on the pneumococcus, which is a bacteria, streptococcus pneumoniae. And we try to look at what's prevalent in the community and then make a vaccine for all of the circulating variants. But when we have a situation where we do that, we are also selecting against those variants and virtually guaranteeing that new variants will emerge. It's the catch-22 of a polyvalent vaccine. Even worse with a monovalent vaccine, obviously, but what if we went after the conserved regions? Maybe we we should be doing that. 
We're going to be getting just all sciency this week. We'll start with a new warning about vaping and then spend some time on an email that asks a very good question. And then we'll continue to a deep dive kind of science lesson about vitamin K and its amazing uh, properties. So let's start with that vaping story. Vaping linked to diabetes. Uh, this is uh, researchers research that was done uh, over two years, 2016 to 2018, over 60,000 adults across the U.S. 9% of them were e-cigarette users with self-reported diagnoses of high blood sugar, which is known as pre-diabetes. And while that's a reversible condition, it certainly can contribute to heart disease and can progress to type 2 diabetes. Though we currently have 38% of adult Americans with pre-diabetes, and that incidence is going up. Uh, So the researchers were looking at that, and they found that Compared to those that didn't vape, e-cigarette users were 22% more likely to have prediabetes. Traditional smokers, by the way, were 40% more likely. So vaping, how it works, how it increases the risk for prediabetes, we don't understand that. But it may be that nicotine, which is found in both traditional and electronic cigarettes, can increase insulin resistance. That's a known fact. And that could cause uh, blood sugar to spike which leads to further insulin resistance. And of course, well, then there's the munchies, right? So uh, this is not safer for e-cigarettes. These are e-cigarettes, by the way. These These are tobacco cigarettes, not the ones that are uh, carrying marijuana or uh, cannabinoids and THC, et cetera. However, I'd love to see a study on that uh, because... I certainly know that people lose control over what they're eating when that appetite gets kicked up. It's really wonderful in cancer, but if you're struggling with obesity or prediabetes, you might want to think twice before you vape anything. Our email today, and we're going to kick off with this, comes from Kim in Washington State. Dear Dr. Don, your conversation about the breast cancer vaccine was much appreciated and gives hopes to those with the BRCA gene. Along those lines, I'm seeking uh, advice for my 27-year-old daughter. I passed along my BRCA2 gene to her, and she is rightfully concerned about her fate with breast cancer. She's strongly considering a risk-reducing mastectomy in the near future. Are there non-surgical strategies such as the alpha-lactobalmumin vaccine you mentioned, aromatase inhibitors, or monoclonal antibodies that will be available in the near enough future that it would be worth delaying a radical surgical approach. Would it be too high a risk to rely on these news tools eventually being available and efficacious in combination with using aggressive monitoring methods, including new cancer detection methods such as DNA markers in blood, such as cell-free DNA, in combination with conventional monitoring methods for women with BRCA genes? Thanks for your thoughts, a concerned mother. Well, this is a question that we're going to spend a little time unpacking, Kim, because you cover a lot of ground there. And I'm going to start with the uh, I'm going to, I'm going to start with unpacking BRCA2 itself, the BRCA2 gene. And I think thanks to Angelina Jolie, everyone knows something 
about the BRCA genes. These create an increased risk of breast cancer. But it's important to understand that this is a risk. This is a lottery ticket in the breast cancer lottery, which we all have. Even men have lottery tickets in this lottery. But if you want to use extend the metaphor, the number of tickets you've got in your hand, each ticket is a chance. So women, because our, we have estrogen and we have our physiology with greatly fluctuating levels and these breasts, lots of cells that can be subjected to mutation, we have a higher risk than men, but men still can get breast cancer. BRCA mutation uh, in a gene, well, that sounds like one thing, but it's actually not. BRCA is a gene. There are lots of places along that gene that can mutate, and it would count as a BRCA2 mutation. People don't understand this is not monolithic. Not all family lines have exactly the same mutation in the same place. And therefore, the protein folds differently and behaves differently. Genes, and what exactly is BRCA2? Well, it's effectively a proofreader. So a person with a BRCA2 mutation will have a copy of a flawed proofreader. And this, think of it as an enzyme that walks along like a guard walking along or an editor walking along and looking for a typo. And when it finds a typo, it stops cell division until that typo can be corrected. Hold the presses. Don't copy that DNA. You also have one copy of a good proofreader. So more typos slip through, but you aren't without the ability to proofread. And genes mutate in cell division a lot. So we have multiple different proofreaders because we have to. This redundancy exists because too much mutation is going to lead to mutations in conserved areas, like we were just talking about with the vaccine. And when you mutate a conserved area, then that cell no longer is viable, no longer works. And most of these protective things were evolved along time ago in animals for that reason. And BRCA, when it was first discovered, it was discovered in cohorts of people with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. And large clusters, familial and lineage clusters of breast cancer were seen, and they went hunting. This is very early in the days of the, of the genome research. They went hunting for the elusive reason, and they found BRCA1 and BRCA2, both proofreader genes. And if you think about the his European history for the last thousand years, you can understand why you might see higher cancer rates in the Ashkenazi Jewish people, because for much of history, they were ghettoized, and they could only uh, marry each other because they, you know, that's part of the religion. So you get second and maybe even first cousins sometimes. That's essentially all that's around to marry. So you end up with two bad copies of the BRCA gene. And that's probably why some family lines, to my knowledge, almost all of them are Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, have about an 85% lifetime risk of breast cancer or ovarian cancer. Now, 85%. Yeah, that makes you think about going ahead and removing the target tissues. But some families with the BRCA2 or the BRCA1 don't have that kind of an 85% risk. That's what I see written out in 
you know, articles about it. But if you start looking into the science, you realize that's not true at all. There are different lineages with different BRCA's that evidently don't create that huge risk. So the first thing that you should be doing, Kim, is looking at your family history. How many grandmothers, great-grandmothers, aunts, cousins, etc., have breast or ovarian cancer in your family line? Because that kind of can give you, a, well, basically an odds ratio for how serious and how much penetrance, a word we use for how active or damaging or beneficial a gene is, how much penetrance it is. It'll give you a better sense of the risk. And another thing I want to talk about briefly is that breast removal still leaves a substantial uh, risk for, uh, because first of all, you really only get about 90% of the breast tissue out. So there's still residual breast tissue that can't be carved out. And if you, if, and so studies were done after about 10 years looking at this. And I'm going to quote you a study by Xiao that appeared in the, in 2016 in clinical cancer research. And this was a uh, meta analysis. It looked at 15 studies, uh, random effects studies. In other words, randomized. They, they calculated relative risks. So if you have the wild type population risk for something, your relative risk is 1.0. If you have half that risk, then your relative risk is 0.5, right? So that makes sense. Now, in this case, they were comparing people who had the BRCA mutation, either BRCA1 or BRCA2, and treating them as a solid cohort, a group. And then they looked at studies where they had either pro- uh, preventative bilateral uh, ovary and tube removal or and or preventative uh, mastectomy where both breasts were removed. And they looked at also cases where these where women had already had breast cancer and went ahead and had both breasts removed. And that's an interesting detail which we'll come back to in a moment. But basically if you had uh both breasts removed, you had a decrease in your relative risk from 1.0, for, which is what the neutral is for that entire group, to 0.55. So about a 50% reduction in risks for breast cancer. So I think it's super important to emphasize that. You didn't get even if you take off 95% of the breast tissue, you didn't get a 95% breast reduction. I mean, risk reduction. You got a breast reduction, but not a risk reduction. And that's just a fact. So when you start weighing the odds, you're doing this major surgery to cut your risk in half. It doesn't come anywhere close to bringing the risk to the general population risk, which, by the way, is about 0.012, excuse me, point. 0.12 or 1 in 8. So if you live to be 85 and you're a female in America, you've got lumping everyone together a 12% or a 1 out of 8 risk of getting breast cancer in your lifetime. Not dying of it, but getting it. And that statistic has been solid for decades. So there we are. But so women who reduced, who took their breasts away before they got 
breast cancer because they found out they had BRCA1 cut their risk in half. The women who waited until they got cancer in one breast, in other words, the women who were getting annual MRIs and potentially in the very near future, one of these uh, DNA, uh, cell-free DNA tests, there's a bunch of them out there and they're, I think, gathering data right now. A lot of women are doing that. And eventually we will know how much risk reduction we get. But given how long it is from the time that that cancer first gets started and might theoretically be picked up on one of these DNA tests to the point where we can even see it, could be as long as 10 years. So we're going to have a while before we can really talk about the efficacy of these uh, cancer blood tests that are coming out and possibly even urine tests. I mean, that's a, another thing we talked about, I think, on last week's show. But here's the, here's the thing. If you wait until you get cancer in one breast and then remove the other breast prophylactically, your lifetime risk of breast cancer goes to 7% of the BRCA group. So actually a little bit lower than the general population risk for breast cancer. And obviously with a 12% risk, we're not going to go out there and remove our breasts when we're done breastfeeding. That's overkill and the number of people who would die from complications of the surgery or uh, suffer you know, d- disability of other sorts like lymphedema in their arms. It isn't risk. It, it isn't worth risking that for such a small difference in uh, reduction. What about removing the ovaries? Well, again, that's also a clue that there's more going on here than BRCA. Because if you had both ovaries removed preventatively, you reduced your risk of ovarian cancer by two-thirds. So you went down to 30% of the untreated group. But if you, it, so that's good. Not what you might think. You've still got, you've still got a pretty significant chance uh, in your lifetime. And why is that? Because when we take the ovary out, there, is resid- there are residual ovarian cells. Plus, there may actually be silent ovarian cancers already present that don't get removed because they're effectively microscopic and invisible. If you were a person who had already had breast cancer and you have your ovaries removed, you get a little bit better risk reduction. You get a, you, a little bit worse risk reduction, excuse me. Uh, you're down to 40% for the same reasons. But the fact that you already had breast cancer says, yeah, there is more going on here. So it's not just BRCA1, it is BRCA2. And now I'm going to kind of turn it around to the stuff you didn't ask about, which is lifestyle, okay? You have to get the mutation in the other DNA. The BRCA itself is not a cancer gene. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a cancer preventative gene. So what are there's so many things that your daughter could be doing, one of which would be First of all, she's high risk because she should get an MRI because that doesn't include any radiation. She should not choose to be a flight attendant. She should not choose to be a shift worker. These are all, these two professions cause increased rates of breast cancer. Obviously, flight attendants, they're up there in the, you know, in the right where they're going to get a lot of cosmic rays and shift workers well, they have more inflammation, and so more likely for that, those 
oxidative, those those uh, nasty free radical oxygen molecules to go and zap their DNA simply because they're not getting enough sleep and they don't have the right balance of hormones in their body. So these are things that she can think about. I would probably not, I would probably look at her detoxification. I would see what I would steer her away from hormonal forms of birth control if unless she tested out as being a good detoxifier because there are some cohorts where that seems to make a difference. I would be looking at her diet. Certainly no smoking, low alcohol, stay away from uh to well, stay away from uh burnt foods, so charred or grilled foods because that upregulates an enzyme that makes a somewhat more toxic form of estrogen. Uh, she's 27. Uh, so if she can, she'll do herself a great deal of good if she carries a baby to term. Not that I would suggest having a baby, but she may be on the fence about having a child because she's got the BRCA gene. Uh, she might want to get that pregnancy because that pregnancy, if you, especially if you do it before the age of 30, but again, that's statistical. So the sooner the better if she's going to have children for her to have children. That reduces the risk of breast cancer because it changes the epigenetics of the breast in a way that makes it less likely to actually develop cancer. I mean, the sort of free, uh, let's call it the free-range human or the wild-type human uh, female got pregnant a lot. She spent a lot of, prior prior to uh, contraception, the average mammalian female is pregnant a lot. Being pregnant reduces your cycling, which keeps your estrogen levels lower. You have higher levels of the protective estrogen, uh, estriol, which is really only present during pregnancy. So there's a lot going on that's helpful. Uh, I would probably not uh, have her eating soy, although that would be debatable. I don't have good science. It might be that soy would be good for her. Uh, if she was 15 and you were answering, asking me this question, she was going through pu- puberty, that her I would put on soy because we know that in the early teens, a diet high in soy is actually protective against future breast cancer 50 years later. So regular exercise, good sleep, essentially all of the healthy lifestyle things that I talk about almost constantly on this program would all benefit your daughter. And with that and high surveillance, I think that she could not die of breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And obviously at 27, putting yourself into premature menopause, removing your ovaries, removing your uh, breasts, that's a radical thing to do. And it doesn't take your risk down as low as she might think. So I hope that is uh, a good answer, and I hope you have uh, time to think that one through. So, I promised you a little bit of a science lesson. We're going to spend some time tonight exploring vitamin K. And uh, this is one of those Matryoshka doll type uh, situations where we thought we knew what it was, and then we twisted the head on the doll, and there was another doll, and and we twisted the head on that one, and it just we just kept fi- learning more and more and more about the benefits of this essential compound. 
Now, I should point out that vitamin K is so essential that we actually give it to newborns in the United States because it reduces the chance of hemorrhage. It was discovered a long time ago in 1936, and you'll love this. Uh, We found it because of chickens, which is also how we uh, found uh, pellagra and a couple of other deficiency diseases, lack of thiamine. Well, that was chickens being fed uh, rice that was polished, and they weren't getting enough thiamine, and they weren't not thriving. And that's how we learned about thiamine, the B1. Uh, That was even earlier than vitamin K. But chickens, again, being fed a low-fat diet, started bleeding. They had a lower coagulation capacity, and they analyzed their what fat they were getting, and they found a novel anti-hemorrhagic factor. It was a lipid-soluble factor, in other words, fat-soluble, and so they decided to name it vitamin K for coagulation, and it was uh, deemed to be essential as an anti-hemorrhagic. And I see we're getting a couple of calls. I'm going to continue talking about vitamin K, but I'm also going to be ready to pivot Uh, and break this so that we can take those calls, because this is a bit of a long science lesson. And I want to be sure that anybody that calls in does get a chance to uh, talk with me. So first of all, vitamin, there's two kinds of vitamin K, vitamin K1 and vitamin K2, and they're really, really different in terms of their biological effect. The one that keeps chickens from bleeding, well, that's vitamin K1, and it's found in green vegetables and plant chlorophyll. Vitamin K2, however, has to be synthesized by bacteria. And that's one of the reasons, you know, children are born without any bacteria in their gut. And so their vitamin K levels can be really low initially. And so, yeah, leafy greens will give you vitamin K1, but it takes uh, fermented food like uh, sauerkraut, uh, meats, because they have digestive tracts, dairy uh, products, in fact, cheese is a very good source. And ferment, and uh, also another great source is fermented soybeans. If you use Bacillus natto, you make a Japanese thing called natto, and it has a very, very high content of vitamin K2, especially like the super vitamin K2, which is MK7, which is easily absorbed. Uh, and you can, you can see very high blood levels when you do that. So uh, let's go. I'm going to tell you more about other sources. I think I said chicken meat, egg yolk, sauerkraut, beef, and salmon. If I haven't said them, you can see really different from leafy greens, all part of a good diet. And we're going to take our uh, first caller. uh, Aline. Aline. Oh, hello, Aline. Yes, hello again. All right. What have you got today? Yes. um, I had mentioned some several uh, weeks ago about Dr. Popkin. Dr. Popkin, they said you knew him. Um, He had a call-in and took call-ins after the interview with him. And I identified with a male caller uh, remarking about hearing his heart beating as he went to sleep on either side of his body with his ear on his pillow. And I have experienced the same thing as in the last three years. And Dr. Popkin told him, ooh, you better go get a cardio, check your heart. Dr. Popkin, Dr. Popkin, of course, 
is a cardiologist, and uh, there's an old saying about if the only tool you have is a hammer. Now, I also think he's unlikely to give advice out on the radio that might um, recoil upon him. And so, but what I do want to say about that is that's a pretty normal phenomenon in uh, in individuals, and it gets worse with mm. age because mm. our 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 arteries get harder. Even healthy people as they age, I'll, I hear it when I take the blood pressure. I'm old-fashioned, so I take the blood pressure with my ears, and I can hear some people, there's a real clicky kind of, mm, think about a drum, and, and if, you're, if you're thinking about a drum, think about whether you're using a wooden mallet or a padded mallet, and the difference in the attack of the sound. So... I can hear that when I take people's blood pressure. Young people almost always have a sort of soft mallet quality. And as we age, and we, I have plenty of patients in their 80s, it's more of a tapping mallet. And we, that is hardening of the arteries. It's not necessarily going to cause a heart attack or a stroke, but it is associated with risks of those because of aging. It doesn't, however, hearing your your heartbeat in your ear is a normal phenomenon. It can happen uh, without any actual dangerous pathology. So if a person's, you know, in their 70s and they ask a cardiologist, should I get a stress test? The answer is going to be yes. And I have a feeling that might be why he and I disagree. It's just context. Eileen, uh, I was in the middle of uh, vitamin K. So if um, is it okay if we uh, yeah, have, have you call back next all, week? I've been reading a lot about the wonderfulness of Olive oil. All right. Well, we'll try to address that as well. Bye-bye for now. Let's go now back to vitamin K. We talked about sauerkraut. I'm not going to give you the exact levels, but I will tell you that cheese is actually a pretty good source. The harder the cheese, the better. And the Dutch win here. So uh, Gouda (laughs) is better than Brie. Well, in terms of vitamin K, I don't think it's uh, better in terms of uh, flavor myself. I'm, I'm more of a Brie, Brie and Roquefort girl. Uh, but fun fact, vitamin K is present in meat and fish, but it varies depending upon the origin of meat. So if, uh, if you are eating chicken meat in the United States, you get vitamin K at about 13.6 and uh, to 31. If it's in the Netherlands, it's 5.8 to 11. So... That's a, a you know a 100% difference between the Netherlands and the United States. But wait, we don't win. The Japanese have it all on us. They are double our levels. Obviously has something to do with how the animals are fed, but I thought that was a little interesting. I want to talk a little bit about where you may have heard about vitamin K, and that's for reducing Coumadin or warfarin overdose. Warfarin is uh, a very dilute dose that's given to people with a with atrial fibrillation or a history of blood clots in the legs. And up until about 10 years ago, it was all we had to reduce the risk of stroke, pulmonary embolism, and uh, such in people with, like I said, either blood clots or in their legs or a history of atrial fib. Then we had these new drugs, which are factor 10A inhibitors, and they're nicer. They, Coumadin's a problem because it's antagonized by vitamin K. And because the, the vitamin K intake in, this is K1, by the way, not K2, but there's a huge variation 
in how many green vegetables people eat in this country. So they've uh, the vitamin K intake that the that gets recommended ranges from fifty to six hundred for K one. And when I was having to use Coumadin, we doctors would have to check the person's coagulation time every month. And in some people, it would migrate; it would go all over the place. And another problem with Coumadin was that it interacted with a lot of drugs. So you start someone on an antibiotic, and that would cause the, well, among other things, it would kill the bacteria in their gut that were making vitamin K. So suddenly they would be hyper; they would be too over over anticoagulated and to be at risk for bleeding and hemorrhage. So we didn't like drug; we don't like drugs with a narrow therapeutic window. And particularly when diet is concerned, because getting people to be consistent about their diet is a serious challenge. A lot of times I saw people being told, well, just don't eat any vegetables uh, if you're going to be on Coumadin. And that's just bad advice. I, I found over the years I did very well with my patients who were orderly in terms of their behavior. And of course, there's a spectrum of people, but the people who kind of had it together and had discipline, I could just tell them, you have to eat, take your pick, one, two, or three servings of vegetables a day. And you have to be consistent about that. And I found that I could get their Coumadin dose pretty even. And as long as they stuck to the same number of servings, it worked out fairly well. I didn't have a lot of variation. So let's review. Vitamin K1, primarily uh, associated with blood clotting given to newborns at birth to to prevent vitamin K deficiency bleeding. And there's low concentrations in breast milk. There There isn't enough coming across the placenta, and that's typical. So that's why it's given to newborns, because it works. But what about bone? You know, we think of vitamin K now a lot in bone, and that's where it's it starts to get interesting. Vitamin K1 primarily gets sequestered in the liver. It prefers it, and it uses it to make all these coagulation factors. Uh, there's also some enzymes outside of the liver that use vitamin K2, and they mainly are around bones. So these are primarily related to bone homeostasis, and also, and this is important for uh, Eileen's question about a, uh, about that sound in your ear at night, because calcification, calcium in the arteries, is a problem. If the if the plaque, even low levels of plaque, get calcium in them, they tend to be stiffer and more likely to break initially. And so, it's it's. We we don't want to see ectopic calcification. That's calcification anywhere but in the bones, by the way. We want we don't want to see it in the arteries. We certainly don't want to see it in your coronary calcium score. And what we do know is that vitamin K is very, very important in the bones because it essentially acts like a traffic director and sends the calcium to the bones, taking it literally out of the arteries and the blood vessels. And there's good data about that. So other things that uh, have come up recently is that vitamin K is an incredible antioxidant. So there's a uh, an antioxidant activity that's 10 to 100 times greater than vitamin D, excuse me, vitamin E, or 
uh, coenzyme Q10, a hundred times greater in some studies. That's pretty amazing. It protects uh, the membrane from lipid peroxidation. So people who, for example, have uh, are getting cancer might want to consider taking a dose of that because it's going to, particularly radiation, it's going to protect the radiation damage to the cell wall. It's protective for oxidative stress in the brains, and it actually rescues a uh, mitochondrial function in the cases of toxicities to the mitochondria. So we're talking about some pretty amazing stuff. And the vitamin K2 and uh, is readily absorbed and gets into the bloodstream. And like I said, the liver doesn't like it, so it leaves it in there. Uh, but it has important protective properties in other ways. When it stays in the bloodstream, it actually causes a regression an improvement in vascular elasticity, the flexibility of the blood vessel, and uh, reduction of stiffening without respect to calcium. This is not calcification. This is some other mechanism. Of course, we know that vitamin K deficiency is uh, a factor in bones, and so therefore you'd expect it to be a factor in in, uh, prevention of osteoporosis, and indeed it is. It's also shown to reduce the risk of developing diabetes. In one study, uh, just a very small dose of vitamin K, uh, 10 micrograms a day. I routinely recommend 150 micrograms of MK7. Oh, did I mention you, even though this is a lipid soluble vitamin, there are no, there's no evidence of overdose at any achievable dose given orally. So I think the body probably knows when to stop absorbing it when it's had enough. I don't think anyone's explored that feedback loop, uh, but I wouldn't take it IV until we have better data about whether there could in fact be an overdose. There's a lot of studies looking at cancer and showing that it inhibits uh, several pathways that are important to the progression of cancer. And there are studies looking at uh, using vitamin K to uh, in cancer cell lines. So these are either in experimental animals or in tissue culture. Uh, There is one or two studies, and I have references for those on request, that suggest that it can be beneficial in wild-type humans for cancer at achievable doses. But again, I haven't vetted those studies. I merely, I'm quoting from the article that I'm reading. So that they exist. So liver disease, also helpful. It's actually been shown in some studies to be an effective agent against hepatocellular carcinoma in alcoholic and non-alcoholic liver cirrhosis. So that might be people with hep C that's uh, caused a lot of cirrhosis or people with alcoholism. Maybe you should be taking some vitamin K2 as a protective. Uh, It's also recently been demonstrated to have an immunomodulatory role uh, MK7 reduces the levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha. We have expensive rheumatological biologicals to do that. I, um, interleukin 1 alpha, uh, interleukin 1 beta, 1 beta is the one that goes sky high in the cytokine storm. And K2 also decreases proliferation of T cells. Uh, and it's been used in a clinical study in children with pediatric atopic dermatitis. That's childhood eczema. Uh, and it's also been given to people on dialysis where it's been shown to be an immunomodulator 
maybe even immunosuppressive, another reason that we want to be careful in giving super high doses of this to cancer patients until we know more. There's a lot of it in the brain, too. And uh, in one study looking at Parkinson's disease, they showed that it improved energy uh, production. It's, it's also been shown to have all sorts of anti-inflammatory properties, and it may actually be important in neuronal differentiation. There was one study that showed that in multiple sclerosis patients, vitamin K2 were much, uh, levels were much lower. We don't know why or what, how to interpret that. Uh, it may be an important vitamin for neurological development. And there's also some data showing that it may affect adiponectin. That's the appetite hormone. Studies of this have shown that it lowers triglycerides and it's uh, down, it downregulates one of the mechanisms that increases the production of fat cells. So you reduce fat cell production and differentiation. Uh, there's some human studies showing increased improvements in body weight, in other words, less body weight, less waist circumference, uh, less visceral fat, and less diabetes. So in conclusion, uh, we all need some vitamin K. Certainly there's no reason to expect that it would be bad for you, and there's a lot of reasons to expect that it's very, very good for you. Now we're going to do a little, let's call it journal club. These are articles that were published in uh, the Lancet, New England Journal of Medicine, and I've been building up one. I'm going to start with a pro-vaccination study, a pretty good one, that looked at data for the human papillomavirus vaccine and the risk of invasive cervical cancer. And this was done in Sweden where they have data on who got the vaccine. And so we're looking at over a million girls, 1,672,983 girls and women from 10 to 30 years. And the era is 2006 through 2017. And well, uh, basically they evaluated girls and women for cervical cancer until their 31st birthday. Fun fact, cervical cancer was diagnosed in 19 women who got the vaccine and 538 women who did not get give the vaccine. Uh, that's uh, pretty good. That, ca- that gives us a risk ratio or an incidence ratio of 0.12. So one-tenth risk reduction in women vaccinated before uh, the age of 17, and a 50% risk reduction in women who were vaccinated between the ages of 17 and 30. And why is that? Well, because some of those 17 to 30-year-olds had already had sex, and this is a sexually transmitted cancer. There's no doubt about it. And it is a very, very good study because people get a reduction of people are tracked. Everyone has like a social security number. They have a health plan number. So allowing for people who moved out of Sweden, it's really important. So in women below the age of 30, 84% of the cancers were caused by one of two types of human papillomavirus, type 16 and type 18. And 
those are have known for a long time to be the worst ones. Sometimes I wonder, are we going to see some of the other less common types of human papillomavirus become more prominent over the years? But that hasn't emerged, and we're now looking at over 15 years of data, and we're not seeing that. But even if you choose not to vaccinate, if the vaccination rate in a population um, exceeds 50%, the people doing the study uh, saw what a herd effect, and that makes sense because just like mosquitoes are the vector for for malaria and dengue, men, uh, sorry guys, but you're the vector to most women of this human papillomavirus. So having sex with you contains some risks, and we'd love to have that not be a risk that gives us and our girls cervical cancer. So important to think about whether or not we shouldn't, whether or not we should be throwing that baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. We have another caller on line one. So hello, you're on the air. Hi, Dr. Don. I have a question on the difference between MK7 and K2. Okay, very good. So MK7 is one of two primary types of um, the vitamin K2, and the MK7 is the one that is preferentially absorbed uh, and very very quickly, and it's the one that has the highest penetration in, in terms of influencing osteocalcin, which is the hormone that takes the calcium out of the arteries and puts it in the bone. So it's the more powerful one. There's also an MK4, which is uh, which is coming directly from chicken meat because chickens have digestive tracts, and so we'll see that in eggs and chicken meat primarily. It is good. Uh-huh. It's just not quite as good. So I always, I always tell people, look at the back of the vitamin K that you're taking. Try for 150 micrograms. This is my postmenopausal cohort where I'm uh-huh. trying to not have to give them a bisphosphonate. Uh, and, Got it. And so it's like I really, I, I understand that sometimes we have to give these bisphosphonates. They do have their issues, but it's way better than, you know, being sidelined with a broken hip and having to go through a hip replacement surgery. Uh, however, there are problems with it. And I actually have an article about that that maybe we'll talk about as my as our next article to pull it out of order since it's, you know, resonant with what we're talking about. Follow-up question there? That's good. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for calling. Bye-bye. So let's do that. Let's uh, pivot. I was going to talk about uh, hypertension, but we should have time to do both of these. So atypical femur fracture risk versus fragility fracture prevention with bisphosphonates. So this was, uh, you know, we've talked about the emergence on this program, oh God, at least a half dozen times about this atypical femur fracture, which is a mid-shaft femur fracture, not a place that usually breaks unless you're hit by a, you know, fast-moving car or a truck right in the thigh from the side, and then you break that bone in that location. But otherwise, that's a really strong location. So the fact that we're starting to see fractures there was concerning. This is a cohort looking at 10 years from 2007 to 2017, uh, and this was women 50 years of older in, uh, or older in the Kaiser Permanente uh, Health Group in Southern California. So they had a lot of data on risk factors. 
their use of bisphosphonate. They also they were look they looked at the rate of fracture, both the fragility fractures and the the atypical fractures over that ten year period. And uh, they had one hundred and ninety six thousand women in that group. They ended up with. 277 atypical femur fractures that could be reasonably attributed to the bisphosphonates. Less than three months, there wasn't a very big risk. Uh, If you got to over eight years or more, the increased risk was uh, pretty high. It was 43.51 of that group. So the longer you were on it, the larger a portion of that 277 atypical fractures there were. But there was a massive decrease in fragility fractures uh, among Caucasians. And so the benefit in Caucasians far outweighed the risk. However, the risk in Asians was much, much larger especially at the uh, 10-year risk. So I'm looking for the numbers here. When you look at the fragility factors for Caucasians versus whites, let's see. The hazard ratio was basically five times higher in Asian women. That was when they looked at height, weight, use of steroids, all the other risk factors. So what this is going to make me do is it's going to make me think very hard about, with my Asian clientele, about talking about them, uh, talking to them about uh, risk reduction and maybe going on burst therapy with their bisphosphonates. And that's, I think, coming out. Uh, so basically, we're looking at a five times greater risk for uh, these atypical fractures. And if you stopped the bisphosphonate for 15 months, you rebuilt the bone and the increased risk disappeared essentially or or almost went back to normal. So uh, this is useful news for women. First of all, bisphosphonate holidays reduce these atypical fractures. Secondly, there's no evidence that if you take a short one or two year holiday, you're going to have more fragility fractures. So again, as it always turns out, I think we need to get a little bit more nuanced and personalized in our approach if we're really going to make the best use of our pharmacopoeia. And I am not anti-drug. I just want to see them be used judiciously and not according to a one-size-fits-all algorithm when very, very evidently one size does not, in fact, fit all just like pantyhose, right? Okay, last story. Science, well, it's frustrating. Turn to the right, turn to the left. Is it or isn't it? Does it or does it? It all depends on the details. It depends on how you ask the question, and even more importantly, what assumptions you make. And we've certainly seen zig and zag on the topic of hypertension and what constitutes a goal blood pressure in the population. Now, for many, many years, 
the healthy blood pressure was anything below 140 over 90 for the general population. We would treat people with drugs, get them below 140 over 90 and call it done. And then in the early 2000s, a relevatory new set of guidelines came out, which said, no, we really want to get them below, we want to get them to 130 over 75 which is fine if you can do that with diet and exercise and lifestyle changes, go you. But the problem is if you have to do it by adding drugs and the drugs themselves have side effects, you run into not only the potential for diminishing returns, but actually the potential for making people worse in your quest to make them better. And that's the wrong turn that we've taken according to the Cochrane Library, which is a very well-respected, uh, I guess you'd call it a uh, database that uh, is a corporation. It's, pub- it's a extremely important group who basically asks the questions, yeah, but does it really? So they looked at a whole cor- cohort of randomized trials and They included 11 of them, total of almost 40,000 participants, and they followed them for four years. And what they found may surprise you. Uh, Because they had so many people, you would expect that even a minor benefit would accrue to treating to this lower blood pressure target if there was, in fact, not a fairly high harm. And we do know that lower targets reduce myocardial infarction, uh, by about 0.4%, uh, which means you have to treat 250 people for four years to actually see one person get better. Uh, they reduce congestive heart failure by 0.75%, which means that you'd have to treat 167 people to prevent one case of congestive heart, uh, heart failure, if indeed you could. But that's how the statistics shake out. The problem was even allowing for the fact that you got fewer heart attacks and fewer CHF, you didn't see fewer deaths. And in fact, you didn't see fewer adverse events, even counting heart attacks and myo- uh, and uh, congestive heart failure as adverse events. Uh, <laughs> the data still favored using a higher blood pressure threshold. In other words, going back to that 140 over, um, 140 over 90, because that group did better over the long term. The problem is falls. Okay, when you get older, your arteries get harder. Even if you're on a ton of vitamin K2, they're still going to get somewhat harder, and you are going to have a problem with getting dizzy when you stand up. Your blood pressure isn't going to get higher faster. It isn't going, your reflexes aren't what they used to be, and you'll have a head rush. Well, that head rush is going to put you on the ground, and on your way down, boom, hip fracture, boom, head injury. So we saved a few people from heart attacks, but gave them hip fractures and enough head injuries that it didn't shake out as improved survival. So according to Corcoran, 140 over 90 is fine. Quit pushing for it lower. I will give you one exception to this, which is in people with renal failure or renal deficiency. In that group, you really do need to get the blood pressure down and keep it there because 140 over 90, you're going to still see progressive renal damage. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. 
please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.